Welcome to Book Bites with Maggie, recording from the Napanee Public Library. I'm your host, the Youth Services Assistant, and joining me on today's episode is Julie. She's an avid reader and our wonderful board president. Together, we are in conversations with a shared theme of investigative journalism. Welcome, Julie. I'm so glad you're here. Okay, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what types of books or maybe genres that you like to read day to day? Sure, Maggie. Thanks for asking me. I'm a retired law enforcement officer. I was in law enforcement for 30 years. Uh, my favorite kind of books to read is historical fiction. I like that they're historical. I was a social studies major in college, awesome. so I like the history part of them, but I also like the storytelling part of them that makes them, very, to me, very interesting, especially World War II. I really like to read those. When we're looking at this group of books that we're going to be discussing today, I feel like there's a lot of emotions for the reader. A really good author can bring in and make the reader feel just as angsty as they probably were in their investigation. Oh, I totally agree with you, Maggie. I think some some of these books, I enjoyed them, but you know, they kind of got me a little bit angry. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> because yeah. all the journal, all the investigation that these authors had to do to produce these books is amazing. Mm-hmm. Also, two of the historical fictions that I like to read. But some of the things, the secrets, the gov- way the government worked, the way big corporations work, it's kind of irritating and kind of maddening. And I guess I would just say, thank goodness for these authors yeah. for bringing some of these subject matters to our attention. Because we probably wouldn't know otherwise. No, we we would, would have no idea. No. Have you read this first book here, The Cadaver King and the Country Dead? I have not. Okay, so this book... John Grissom, huh? He, yeah, he wrote the foreword, and he does a fantastic job with it. So this is written by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington, and it is the true story of injustice in the American South. And we were just talking about how we can get angsty. This one, when I finished reading it, reading it, and it was because I was clenching my teeth. I was Gosh. so mad. So it takes place in Mississippi, and it follows, um, the storyline kind of kicks off with a murder in a small town of two little girls. And it follows through kind of the court cases and what is happening um, when who they believe the murderer is is sent to jail. 30 years or several years later, we find out that it was a wrong conviction. And two men spent over 30 years combined in jail for these murders that they did not actually commit. That's what kind of kicks off the storyline. So then you're trying to figure out, well, how did two people end up in jail enter your title, the cadaver king and the country dentist. These two people have put themselves into power and throughout the entire book, you get case after case after case where they have inserted themselves into different trials and given their opinions and changed court cases all across the South, primarily Mississippi, but sometimes they crossed um, state lines. The cadaver king, he's, um, the coroner. So he's the coroner in a lot of these stories. And it gets to the point where he is conducting, quote unquote, like up to 30 autopsies a day. That seems like a lot of autopsies to be yes. doing in one day. <laughs> yes, in one day. And you're like, and it was done well, and it was recorded well. Like, there's so many red flags as the reader going, how in the world did this happen? Well, he kind of had help. So the country dentist also because he's a doctor, becomes like this expert in all things that he thinks he should know. And then he's giving expert witness back and forth, rubbing each other's back, and they're making money off of these court cases. 
and it's just there's so many red flags as you're reading it and you just you get so mad and then all you can think about is how in the world was anything ever not wrongfully convicted in the way that they did this because it was such a mess but again total cringeworthy it makes your teeth just hurt because you're gritting them the entire time you're reading yeah. so was this all found out prior to the this author getting involved or did he bring all this i think he brought it all to light the way that this one is written so it's the haunting story of how the courts and the Mississippi death investigation, a relic of the Jim Crow era, failed to deliver justice to dozens of its citizens. The authors argue that bad forensics, structural racism, and institutional failures are at fault, and it raised sobering questions about our ability and our willingness to address these crucial issues. Like you said, too many red flags that you think, why didn't anybody question, question this before? But, but then it turns the whole entire community on its heel because... If one person was wrongly convicted, then doesn't it change how much you believe every other conviction that together these two men brought down sentencing? Well, that kind of reminds me of one of the books that we were going to talk about with DNA evidence mm -hmm. and how many wrongly uh, convicted people have been released yeah. from prison because, thank goodness, the DNA evidence has proved but you know, we're talking about people who have spent 20, 30 years in prison. Yeah. And um, like this book. Yeah. <laughs> have you read this one? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about I'll what you're gone. holding and who wrote it. It's um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Mm -hmm. um, it was her, uh, as it says, one woman's obsession, obsessive search for the Golden State Killer. And she did. And I think we've talked about it, Maggie, that there's even more now because there's possibly other victims that weren't identified. Um, and the daughter of the killer is helping the law enforcement now check into, I mean, it's, it's tragic, but her obsession with this brought this guy to, to justice. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a former law enforcement officer, technology is changing all the time and what you can find out but on the other hand, are people using the technology when they should be? Right. I mean, because it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. But I think that this was one of the key cases that people are like, oh, yeah, this is, and that was to find the killer. Yeah. What we were talking about before was maybe letting people who were wrongly convicted out of prison. But Very different perspectives, but it takes uh, some somebody who with an outside perspective can bring investigative journalism to its knees and there's some end chapters that are added to the revised version and so it's it's not all for naught it wasn't just written as something to sell books but there was still an outcome right. even years later and now like i said they're maybe going to tie some other crimes to him with the help of his daughter wow. but um, this book think about it and i guess that's one thing about whether it's historical fiction or these investigative journalism, the amount of time and research that these authors put into whatever subject they're writing, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Um, and you think, well, how would one person be able to make change? But they do. They do. Just like your book that you were talking about with the cadaver king. So, so oftentimes there's like um, an index in the back that might tie back to some of the work that they did to or organizing the way that they write the stories 
like um, reading this, this whole type of theme, I like it because it's not just like reading a textbook or reading a newspaper. They're able to write it together so that it reads like a story and you get emotionally invested. This next book that I wanted to talk about here, Sadie by Courtney Summers, this is from our teen section. And I listened to this book several years ago when it first came out. And it was one of the first audiobooks that I listened to that I didn't feel like it was just being read to me, but it felt like I was experiencing it. So this was a fun, a fun read for me. It's about Sadie. She is raising her little sister, but when her little sister ends up dead um, and there's not too many leads, Sadie, who's like the only family that her sister has left, goes off kind of like on a vigilante. I'm going to find out what happened to my sister and I'm going to track this person down and um, have my way with him. And it takes then this small town story and we know that Sadie's out and on the hunt trying to find this this guy that took her her sister and somebody else overhears that she's out trying to find him and then becomes that investigative journalist um, himself and so then he jumps in starts a podcast and he is working in tandem and when alternating chapters you get back and forth between being in Sadie's head and what she is learning and experiencing is she's trying to navigate what happened to her sister. And then you have an outside perspective from somebody who never met either sister trying to follow in her footsteps. Where did she go? What did she learn? What was her reaction to each of these things? But as an audiobook, and knowing that there's a podcast involved, the sound recordings and the police interview excerpts, and going on and offline, there's all these little idiosyncrasies and sounds that just feels like a big storyboard and it's all mashed up together and it is absolutely an experience to listen to and one that has stayed with me for a very long time. So this was Sadie by Courtney Summers and it is a fiction book that deals with investigative journalism. Oh, you bringing that up about podcasts and the, the crime podcasts that are Really I think over, that's why all of these the world, yes. don't you think? Oh, I agree. And I just I had read that the thing is with a lot of people who follow are now becoming paranoid because they're, everything they see, they're like, do I have to write that down because that might be this or it might be that, mm-hmm. and that's getting a little bit too far into your podcast. Thing. Well, it, it is, but at the same time, like you've had you know generations of people that watch Dateline NBC and they yeah. watch sixty minutes and. That's exactly the same thing. They're just not getting the visual from a yeah. podcast. Yeah, but some of those podcasts, those are kind of spooky. Those are, oh, yeah. um, they're delving into some really scary stories. And uh, you don't want people to become paranoid. Right. But you, real life you know, is scary though sometimes. Well, and you always need to be aware of your surroundings and your circumstances, even if you live in a little town like Napanee. But um, yeah, it's really taken the listeners by storm. There's so many of them and they're good. Yeah. They are very good. This one, Bad Blood. Have you read this? I have not. Okay, so Bad Blood is a current events. So when you're going back and forth, some of these books are very historical. Some of them, like I'll Be Gone in the Dark, that one has a solution, even though the case is still building. Bad Blood was in current events. This is Secrets and Lies in the Silicon Valley Startup by John Carriow. And this one, I did not realize when I picked it up that it was literally going to court in the exact same season that I was reading this book. So again, it has now dated itself. We have more updates since the book was actually released, but like a good last portion of the book has all of the data and the research that happened in this story. So this is the story 
of, uh, let's say, a female Steve, Steve Jobs. So she's starting a business. It has a lot to do with when we were talking about the technology and DNA. Right. So she has dreamed up this unicorn of a blood test oh, and starts yeah. selling it over and over and over again into investors. The problem is the technology is actually not there. I believe I've seen the... Have you seen it on Netflix, the news? Well, I've seen the... Is there a, a Netflix story about it? Or? You know, I think that it was going to go to film, but yeah. I haven't seen it. So it's already out, maybe? Yeah. So it, that's what it ties back to this. And so year after year, our main character, she is selling a product that literally doesn't exist. And she gets all those investors. All, in. Yeah, like millions and millions and millions yeah. of dollars. And every time somebody starts to like, hmm, something's not quite right here, raise flags, they get fired, they get shut down, the lawyers go after them, all these different things. But she speaks so highly and confidently of this unicorn blood test that doesn't really exist but once she really starts messing with people's health and giving them test results with false negatives and false positives and all these different things people are really starting to get hurt by her lies and it takes um, somebody being nervous but going to a reporter and being like you need to look into what Theranos is doing and I something's not right and that source then being petrified for their life that somebody could come after them. And it took a um, New York Times um, writer to really break into the story. And within a couple of articles in the newspaper, was able to bring this company to its knees. But it was a huge undertaking. But again, an absolute arching story where you're just feeling so angsty as you're reading it because you you get invested in some of these characters you get backstories on why this person was looking for a blood test maybe because they were predisposed to something and so this blood test promised to tell them whether or not they could potentially get a cancer in well, their and, future and she was filling up this void where people wanted to be able to do you know what i mean yes they wanted that simple blood test because that would be the answer to their problems and she had investors henry kissinger mm -hmm. i mean she had all these big name investors just um, throwing money at it yeah. and she was waiting for that technology i think to catch up to all of her promises right. and but it wasn't she happening. was like a, she dropped out of college and mm -hmm. she really had a bright future ahead of her but she could sell it that's for sure yeah and then her boyfriend gets involved in it yeah yeah it's 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 scary. It's very scary. And it makes you question everything. Like you were talking about with the podcasts, you're starting to see the world through a different lens and what's true and what's not. Who do you believe? Who do you not? Exactly. Who can you trust? Yes. And not just their words, but their actions. When you're talking about something that is current, this is one of my favorites with yeah. Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow. And it's kind of the Harvey Weinstein um, sex scandals, as you would call them, about the way he treated uh, women in his line of work, which he was a huge producer, director, whatever. But what Ronan Farrell, through this whole book, was discovering, and it didn't just stop with Harvey Weinstein, he was a very influential person. Nobody wanted to step on his toes, so to speak. Um, and it went all the way to NBC, all the way to the top press, because at that time, Ronan Farrell was a was working for NBC. This was NBC's story. Oh, okay. But um, they fired him due to the pressure of Harvey Weinstein and other people. So then he goes to the New York, I don't, 
don't hold me to the New York Times, but a, a newspaper or a magazine and continues in that, it gets uh, published that way. And then everybody's like, why didn't NBC want this story? And then they make up lies about him. And it's kind of through the Matt Lauer. Yeah. Matt Lauer was a co-worker of his at the time. And I'm sorry, Maggie, but this book, because it's so current. Yeah. And I watch NBC now and I'm just like, have you taken care of all these problems, all these people, these men in these really high-ranking positions mm-hmm. on these um, networks and so on? They're all trying to cover themselves. But, like, I feel like people don't even talk about it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, it was all anybody was talking about for the longest time. And then it's like, it just fades off. And so yeah. you're like, Where, where's the resolution? Did Are they still on the payroll? Are they not? Like... Yeah. Are there contracts Are we still, still protecting these people? Yeah. And, um, but it's kind of like how it is in the, the world that we live in. It catches the, everybody's attention for one news cycle or whatever, and it kind of yeah. goes away. Um, but this, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, and it's really, really good, um, I thought. So when you're talking about the research, and his is... At the back is oh, where, yeah. yeah. He's got all of his But a book that, resources. I, that I read um, called The Girls Who F- uh, Fought Crime um, is a book about the first women police officers in the New York Police Department. And we're talking about the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And that book, she says, the author says, there was like, there's like a mu- New York Police Department museum and stuff, but not back that far and don't really capture what these women went through. Mm-hmm. Um, so this author does all this research and uh, and like you were talking about Maggie with making it more personal I mean she still talks she talked to a grandson who still wears his grandma's um, badge like made into a ring yeah. and so that makes these stories interesting and uh, it's not like you said not just a textbook it makes it more human well so when so your author is Mary Ed Edder I think that wrote The Girls Who Fought Crime and in the, the final chapters, it talks about the legacy that she left because she had two daughters. Um, one of those daughters then had two sons who all, no, a son and a daughter who then also joined the force. Right. So it's like to see that lasting legacy that what she did as a groundbreaker and how fruitful that was. And well, and how successful she was at recruiting other women mm-hmm. um, into, you know, what they called the reserves or the women reserves yeah. during World War or two when there weren't any men so they had to to get these women and she was so successful and she always had a plan that she wanted to be a detective and um, she carried through on that and you're right she her legacy lives on and it's a very good book especially yeah. for those of us who are women in law enforcement see and uh, I'm not in law enforcement and <laughs> I enjoyed it just it. as much yeah, yeah for sure yeah. and then I realized that the author wrote another book too so now that one's on my radar to read about women I think in the military because she wasn't the author is in the uh, former yeah, she, military yeah, yeah former military yeah so she this was one that didn't really I mean it was kind of sad what the women did but when you're talking about the 1800s into the 1900s mm-hmm. now like I think it is a little frustrating that <laughs> the percentage of women yeah. um, are still very is fair, still very low. Nineteen yeah. percent in twenty twenty. They signed a pledge to get to thirty percent by twenty thirty. And that's just in New York City. That's just in New York City. Yeah. Nationwide, it's lower, and having women in um, high ranking positions is even lower. Um, but it talks about in that story how 
like the outcomes were better. There is less violence. There was less reactions out of criminals when they're being handled and questioned by a woman. And it really does go into depth about the different perspective that a female officer brings to law enforcement and the different ways that they are treated by a community in which they serve versus their male counterparts. Well, and, and she started out, she worked several jobs in the New York City bureaucracy mm-hmm. before she became a police officer, and one of them was like a social worker. Yeah. And so it's kind of ironic that now police are kind of going back to that. You don't always need a police officer responding to every 911 call you know, their mental health or this or their that. But she was way ahead of her time. Yeah. Because she was doing that back in the nineteen the early nineteen hundreds. Yeah. Uh, they were sending women on those kind of calls where they didn't need you know, it was a not a vi- a crime of violence or whatever. Yeah. And so her background as being a social worker and helping people in that regard, um, paid off and it helped her be a excellent in her job. So yeah. I'm going to always remember her name, May Foley. She was so cool. Yeah, I love that book. She, yeah, and again, remind us the title was The, the Girls Who Fought Crime. The Girls Who Fought Crime. Yeah. So we have that. It's a physical book on order here for our library. I listened to this one as an audiobook over the weekend. Um, and did you have an ebook? I mean, it just came out just within a couple of weeks ago. No, I actually have the book. Oh, you own it. Oh, you borrow it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, does it have pictures and things that I it might does. have missed out on? It so, yeah, I'm pic- definitely interested does, in looking through It has through a them. picture of the ring that her grandson wears with her badge. Oh. And, um, yeah, and it was funny. They talked about how the women had different badges than the men. and I mean, it, that's very good. And the pictures, I love looking at those, you know, yeah. pictures from that era. They're so funny. There's um, several books here. So I like that you were talking about that, that there's pictures inside. Oftentimes when you're reading a giant uh, nonfiction story, you can look just kind of at the page um, ends and you can always tell when there's a difference in the pages that there's going to be like a little section of photographs or something to really take you to that next level where you feel like you are part of the story. In, yeah. And in her book, she also t- or there's also pictures that she's gotten from museums of parades and so on where these women uh, would march and it's... They were invited to march with the men, and so they would join in on their own. Yeah. Oh, I just, I loved it. It was very inspiring. It's it's a very good book. Yeah, she was quite a woman. She uh, got a lot accomplished, and like we said, um, her influence has affected generations of women in law enforcement. So So some of the books that you talked about made me think of others that I read. So the Harvey Weinstein um, scandal definitely comes through, and she said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tolley, it's breaking the sexual harassment story that helped ignite the Me Too movement. This one goes hand in hand with, which one? The, the Catch, Catch and, and Kill. Kill, the Ronan Farrow book. And so this one goes more into how they broke that case wide open and how they came at it as investigative journalists from a different perspective. And in doing so, they were able to get around some non-disclosure agreements and different things like that. And this book too, like some of these other ones, has gone on to then film. So you can watch it somehow on screen. It might be a movie or a short documentary series. But you get the whole picture of what all went into an investigation and then this other one here. Oh, we were talking about NBC. I read Slanted. Have you read Cheryl Adkinson's I Slanted? I saw that on your list. Yeah, this one here, we have that copy of a physical book on order as well, but it's written from a broadcast journalist who started to question everything that she was being spoon-fed to 
do in stories and question why are we sharing the news that we are and why are different parts of stories left out? And is it only to accomplish a certain narrative? And she starts to question her own journalist like occupation and in doing so she's like why am I doing what I'm doing because once upon a time journalists were coming at you from an unbiased perspective where they would give both sides to a story they would share that with the greater community and then you got to decide what you wanted to believe or what you wanted to know to be truth and now that's not the case that different news media outlets they might have an agenda or as she calls it a narrative and so they're going to spoon feed you what they want you to believe and leave out um, very important details to try to direct you as their viewer a certain way and I liked reading this book because like I we quit watching the news as a family more than five years ago because I didn't feel like I was getting both sides to a story and like some of these other conversations that we were talking about that things are in your face until all of a sudden they're just hush hush and now we're on to the next thing and you don't know what you don't know. So having a journalist write about how she's worried about journalism as a career was an interesting take on what her own occupation is. So that was Cheryl Adkinson's Slanted and it just talks more about like how they're censoring their own content. Well and that's even again I hate to keep going back to Ronan Farrell's book but that is what they do censor their own content, and they decide what we as the viewers want to hear. That was part of why NBC used as an excuse not to publish his report, was because they said, that's not for morning. People in the morning don't want to hear that stuff. But who are they to decide what we yeah. as viewers want? Yeah, and so that was just one of the things. Uh, and then when they did have it, they wouldn't let him tell the story because they because Harvey, of Harvey Weinstein's pressure on them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like you're talking about, they self-censor, or censor, and they decide, well, this is what people want, or this is what we need to tell people. Um, and so, if you've ever watched the morning show, it's a- Not generally. It's an Apple TV show about, it could be about the Today Show or Good Morning America, but it's, you know, it's obviously not true. but. Obviously, they have people who have written it and have given their input because it's probably a pretty good look at what goes on behind the scenes and how they decide what is newsworthy and what isn't. Yeah. And um, like you said, they make their decisions on what we get to hear, whether that's really what we want to hear or not. Yeah. Maybe we would like to hear both sides. So maybe it's easier for us to read these giant nonfiction titles yeah. and come to our own. Well, our I think own that's story. true. Yeah. Because, and that's another thing in these books, you know, they have to be very careful that what they're presenting is fact. Yeah. And in this book, they always ask, well, has anybody talked to Harvey and are you getting his side of the story? They have to always offer that opportunity. Balance it. Yeah, to say, this is what we found. What, what do you have in, in, in a reply or whatever? And, of course, they don't want to answer that. Yeah. So. So that's the benefit of reading um, these investigative journalism books that are current events. But what happens when you're reading a book where there is nobody left to tell the stories? Have you read Colson Whitehead's, um, oh shoot, the cover is black and white and red. Oh, who wrote that? What was the name of it? 
Still look cute. The Nickel Boys. No. You haven't read The Nickel Boys? Okay. I've heard about that. But... So, um, The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead was kind of like... I feel like it was a bestseller. It kind of took the world by storm. But it was not the first book that I read about the Dozier School for Boys. Are you familiar yes. with that in Florida? So, I've read three books. Now, this is the one that I read most recently, We Carry Their Bones. This is The Search for Justice at the Dozier School for Boys by Erin Kimmerly. And she is a forensic um, anthropologist. And so, she is on the grounds and using um, scientific research, DNA, to try to put names to the remains on the burial grounds that were not documented um, within the school, nor with headstones or anything like that. So this one, um, again, is the third book that I read, so they're all kind of coming together. But the Dozier School for Boys um, was still in active use until 2011, which is not that long ago. But it was established in the 1900s, and it was used as a reform school for kids that were as young as six years old. Doing something as small as, like, truancy as a young elementary age school could um, have you relocate to this school that treated you atrociously. It was not there to reform you. The, you were used as farm slaves to local farms around the school. Um, but the brutality of what was happening in the school is just atrocious. So if you really want to get upset, <laughs> investigate this or the Tennessee and Children's that, Home Society. Anything any of that has to do with children. Yes, it's it's very emotional. This book is written from the perspective of the archaeologist who is um, using technology. She's doing scans over fields and trying to bring the remains and then match the remains to the documents to give closure to so the families. So the families didn't know where their children were buried? Is mm -hmm. that... No, they found out. Like as you're reading this, there's like mass graves. Um, they might have been told that their child ran away when really their child died. So just all kinds of things. But her, through her research, as she's like scanning these properties and she's told there's 30 kids buried in this field outside of the, the property of the Dozier School there in Florida. But then she finds more remains mixed in the tree roots and an adjacent property and the search area widens and widens and widens and it ends up that there's she finds remains of more than 60 that's over double the initial amount of deceased children that so they tell her are there ordered by the court to go there or did the families just make the decisions to send them there um you know i don't remember because some of these every horrible thing schools that we're learning about they were court ordered mm -hmm. and somebody you know is probably they, getting a kickback yeah from why are the judges beds? put sending so many children to the school be, or you know and because somebody's making money yeah you know sorry to be so cynical but, but no but it's true <laughs> it's true again because I've read three different books about this school some of the content is overlapping in my head so if it didn't come from this book though we carry with their bones it could have come from the nickel boys or it could have come from the dozier school for boys forensic survivors in the painful past that one was by Elizabeth Murray but just the amount of investigation that goes into what happened in the story the science is speaking for itself when those people are no longer around to ask. Like we were talking about the 
the Harvey Weinstein things, in those cases, he's still around. We can still get both sides to the story right. this way. In the other case, we're using science to kind of back the investigation. They are heavy hitters. They are. I think that's a lot of this investigative journalism. Mm -hmm. um, they are looking at, for happy stories. They're looking. They're digging into um, whether it's the government or big corporations or whatever, or individuals like the bad blood, mm -hmm. um, secrets that people are trying to hide or sweep under the carpet or whatever, however yeah. you want to call it. And a lot of it was done, and it was done for a long, long time yeah. um, without getting brought to the surface, I guess I would say. Agreed. So another book that we were going to talk about here was What Made Maddie Run. It has more of a mental health um, aspect to it. So Madison is just kind of like your typical all-American high school student who excels in everything that she does. But the problem is when she gets to college, she's not able to maintain that. And we see from the investigative journalism in the book that this one comes from um, Kate Fagan. She takes this story and she unearths more that Maddie is struggling in her day-to-day -day life as a college student until she literally commits suicide. So this is an in-depth um, biography written with a sports aspect to it but the psychology around what made Maddie do what she did and to the people that she left behind but it's all pieced together so you get the big picture of Maddie as a student and then the unfortunate outcome but it's also written in a way that maybe it will help others look at their interactions with kids and um, open their eyes a little bit more to some of the things that they are dealing with internally. And so you, you get kind of an education in the mental health side well, of that story. Mental health and suicide prevention is what people are talking about. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we need to be concerned about this. It's a, it's a real problem. It's a real problem everywhere. Um, and you can't always tell, like you said, yeah. how this book's The way people front themselves is totally different than what they're keeping behind closed so doors. Even when it's, you know, a close-knit family and they think they know what their children are thinking or doing, yeah. it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah. Stories are definitely something that can educate ourselves as we're reading them and learn from what are within these pages. Anthony Horowitz has been around a long time. Have you read any of his stuff? I think I have, yes. So this is the first book in his Daniel Hawthorne series. It is going to be in our mystery section, and the word is murder, is written about um, a police detective in Scotland Yard, and I it kind of reads like uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, so you have kind of the give and take and the banter between partners that are working, but the one that made this book stand out is while Anthony is investigating the death of a woman who had just planned her funeral and then is found murdered in her own home. They're trying to decide then, did she plan her own funeral and just by happenstance end up dead the next day or was there some ill intent in it? So he is investigating this death, but he writes himself into the story. So it's just totally like, wait, what just happened as you're reading it? <laughs> And so it kind of balanced out some of these other hard-hitting books that we've talked about today. 
in one that also kind of made you step back and chuckle. So it's the first book in a series. You can read the rest of them. They all kind of tie together. There's like the word is murder, the sentence is death are the first two, and I think there's a third one. So it's just, it's a good balance to some of the different topics in the books that we talked about today. Um, do you have any, oh, Killers of the Moonflower. Want to talk about that one? Huge movie coming out yeah. this, well, in October, I think. Uh, pretty soon, yeah. And it talk about frustrating and maddening and every other word you can think of to mm-hmm. describe it, but um, story about how the American Indians were treated and uh, it's... Did you know anything about that part of history before you read it? I did. You did? I, yeah. Well, the, the way that the American Indians were moved, they would be settled in one state and then move, and, um, and unbeknownst to the American government, who pushed them that way, there was all this oil beneath the land, but the way they were treated and their children were sent to schools, couldn't learn their own customs, their own language. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really... I guess I should say shocking, the way they were treated, but as a fan of history, you know, that probably wasn't the only time that they were treated that way. Right. But that book is, again, well-researched, documented, and I can't wait for the movie to come out. I think it'll be really good. But the Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Grian. Again, we can add you to the whole list on that one because there is a lot of people that are wanting to read this because I was watching the trailer and it's like well stacked with known actors. Actors. Yeah, so like I yeah. hope they do it justice. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the birth of the FBI, that's another interesting side story to yeah. this. Um, but in the local law enforcement, how corrupt they were and again, it was all about money and control and power. Um, but what they did to that whole generation of American Indians and it's disheartening it it really is it really is so thank you so much to listening to Maggie's book bites Julie this was awesome especially for recording early in the morning I'm super impressed that we were able to carry on a great conversation Um, you've been a wonderful co-host for this episode Um, in November our next podcast is going to be cozy reads so that should be a little bit easier to balance out some of these hard hitters that we had in investigative journalism this podcast is catering to our local library community but if you've stumbled on Maggie's book bites from outside of the greater Napanee Indian area don't be afraid to check your own public libraries or bookstores if a title that we mentioned piques your interest If you're local, give us a call and we'd be happy to set aside any of these titles for you to pick up on location. As we mentioned, some of these titles we currently have available only as ebooks and e-audio books, but we have the physical books on order. These will be on display near the stained glass windows for you to pick up or we can again put you on hold if you would like. Uh, To learn more about the services and the programs provided, visit us online at napanielibrary.org and don't forget to subscribe for additional content. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Maggie.